The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. If you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm really thankful that you're with us this morning. We have a lot of work to do, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 27. You can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 27, winding down this study uh, through the book of Acts, which started essentially with a statement from Jesus, right, that, that um, they were to wait for power from the Spirit who would empower them to be Christ's witnesses in Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we've seen over these 26 chapters so far. We've seen the gospel spread. The the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has spread like wildfire throughout the entire Mediterranean region over these last 25 or 30 years. And scores of people have given their lives to Christ. Now, we don't know exactly when the gospel came to the city of Rome. Rome was basically the center of the universe at that point. Uh, we don't know when the gospel got there. It's, it's, per, it's possible that it came, uh, remember in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples, and it says that people from all over the world were gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Well, the text actually says there were people from Rome who were there. So it's possible that all the way back to Acts chapter 2, uh, God had brought Jews to Jerusalem to hear the gospel, to take back with them, and he was fulfilling his promise in them from the beginning. But uh, all we know is it didn't come through Paul. Paul has taken the gospel all over the place, but he didn't bring it to Rome. Uh, there, were, there was a church established in Rome. There were Christians there, and Paul longed to see them. And three years previous to the point where we are in the story, uh, Paul had written a letter to the church at Rome. He was likely finishing up that third missionary journey in, in uh, Corinth and, and had written this letter to, to Rome saying, I hope one day to come see you, but I have to go to Jerusalem first not knowing that his trip to Jerusalem would be his ticket to Rome, uh, although under different circumstances. So now we have seen Paul arrested uh, multiple trials before uh, Jewish authorities, before Roman authorities, before governors and kings, uh, no charges, uh, and, and yet finally he appeals to Caesar. And Paul will now, in verse, uh, chapter 27, make this long-awaited journey to Rome as a prisoner. Now, Paul was a man, I think, even at this point, who would say that he was confident that his life was in Jesus's hands, no matter what came his way. I'm also pretty sure he didn't expect what we're about to read about. And so, you know, the question maybe we need to wrestle with a little bit is, how do we make sense of trial? Um, I don't know if you've noticed this in Acts, but it started with the power of the Spirit coming, and and that power was largely for evangelism and for spreading the gospel. And in these last chapters, the power of the Spirit is still there, but it's more a power for endurance through hardship and trial. So how do we make sense of trial, hardship, especially unexpected trial? So that's kind of where we're going Um, There's a lot that I have to read, so I'm going to kind of skip around just a little bit in the text. Um, Generally, I like to read the entire passage, but there's just too much this morning. So um, join me, Acts 27, starting in verse 1. For some reason, I keep skipping past. Okay, 
I'm going to read like 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip down to verse 9, and we'll read a little bit, um, and, and then we'll go from there. But let me pray first, and then we'll start in chapter 27, verse 1. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather around your word. Um, I thank you for the presence of these people, um, both online and here in the room, and those who will be at the 11 o'clock, and, and we thank you for the presence of your spirit here with us right now. You are here. You are present with us in this very moment. And so my prayer as we look into your word is that you would help us see amazing, wonderful, beautiful things in your word and that you would meet us here with whatever need, whatever weakness, whatever struggle, whatever sin, whatever doubt, whatever anger or frustration that we are carrying with us right now, that you would meet us here in your word, by your spirit, and do the work that only you can do in our souls. So we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, look with me. Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 1. So remember, before I start, I know I keep setting it up and then stopping. Uh, Paul has been before King Agrippa, right? The, the um, sort of the poster boy for the empire. And there, he made his appeal, but there were no charges. They couldn't find anything to charge him with. But he had appealed to Caesar, so he's got to go to Caesar. And when it was decided, verse 1, that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion, that's a leader of a hundred soldiers, of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, try that one three times, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave leave to him to go to his friends and be cared for. Now skip down to verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest to spend the winter there. Okay, let's stop right here. And if you're a note taker, you can write this down. Uh, Paul gives here a wise warning. Okay, a wise warning. Now, um, Luke, who wrote the, the gospel account of Luke and the book of Acts, uh, is writing here, and he says, it was decided that we should sail to Italy. So that tells us that Luke has rejoined Paul and will accompany him now all the way to Rome on this ship, which is important because that means for us that the account that Luke gives us is Luke's firsthand experience of being on that boat. It's his personal account, okay? That's important. This is historical. This is documentary making, if you will. Luke is the one writing it. He was on the boat. Also, we see Aristarchus. Now, uh, we've seen him a couple other times. Uh, Acts chapter 19, he was there at Ephesus when the riot happened. Acts chapter 20, it, uh, it appears that he accompanied Paul on his journey to Jerusalem. So he's part of this mission team. He's part of, uh, he's a traveling companion of Paul's. We don't really know much else about him. He's mentioned again in the book of Philemon as a co-laborer with Paul. He's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 as a uh, co-prisoner, a fellow prisoner. 
And, and that's all we really know about him. But that gives me encouragement because here's a guy, Aristarchus, who's just playing his role. Slow, steady, kind of unnoticed. He gets a couple mentions, but he's just playing his role in the kingdom of God, playing his role in the mission of God. And he's a faithful man to Jesus all, all the way to the end. And isn't that enough for our lives? To just play the role that God has given us faithfully, steadily, uh, until he brings us to glory. So Festus and Agrippa, the governor and the king, confer. And they still have no official charges to bring against Paul, but he appealed to Caesar and there's no takebacks. So he's got to go. He's got to go to Rome. There's no official Roman transport. So they got this guy, Julius. He's a centurion. He's a, a leader in the, in the Roman army. And they say, okay, take him and some other prisoners. You got to get him to Rome. And so he's just got to basically hitchhike his way there. So he finds a boat and it's going to go up the sort of the coastline. Um, and he's going to take them. Uh, they're going to have to hop boats in just a minute and they're going to make their way to Rome. Now, in the best of circumstances, this was like a month and a half long trip. In fact, Robbie, can you pull that first map up for me real quick? This is my last time of showing you maps, I think. I'm a little sad about it, but uh, okay. So you've seen maps similar to this before. Right now, Paul would be at Caesarea, which is bottom right. And they're going to head to Rome, which is top left. Okay? So ordinarily, they would kind of sail through the Mediterranean and it would be about a six-week journey, month-and-a-half journey. This particular journey is going to take over four months. Why? Well, primarily because it wasn't a good time to be sailing, okay? Um, if you look at verse 9 with me, where it says in verse 9 that uh, the, the time of the fast had already passed. You see that? Since much time had passed in the voyage. Uh, sorry, that's the wrong verse. Wait, isn't it? Yeah, the fast was already over. Sorry, I, my eyes skipped over it. That's, a, that's the Day of Atonement. There, there's only one fast prescribed in the Old Testament. It was, it was around the season of celebrating the, fast, the, the Day of Atonement, which happened around mid-October, okay? Now, it was known at this time in this part of the world that uh, around mid-fall, like mid-September to mid-November, was, was risky at sea because of the way the winds blew and all that kind of stuff. And from sort of mid-fall, all the way to March was just outright dangerous. You didn't sail. Like, no sea travel would really happen during those times. And yet, they got to get to Rome. And so that's why, if you look at the map here, they hug the coast. So they go up from Caesarea to Sidon, and then they just sort of hug the coast. The text says that they use the island of Cyprus. Uh, it says the Lee of Cyprus. That just means they use the island as a pick, right, to, to block the wind so they're not facing headwind, Okay. So they go around the Lee of Cyprus, they go, oh, they find their way to Myra right there, okay? And when they get to Myra is when they find this uh, ship from, from Egypt, from Alexandria. It's a grain ship. We find that out later in the chapter. It's full of wheat, and it's headed to Rome. And so they change ships, and they put the prisoners and Paul and the centurion and everyone else on this boat uh, at Myra. And then they kind of go up the coastline to this town called Snidus. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay, and then they make their way south towards Crete, and they're again having to sort of hug the coastlines and uh, use the islands as a pick so that they don't take headwinds, and they end up at this place called Fair Havens. Okay, and they're going to go from there and try to get to Rome. Now, here's a question: Why would the why would the Egyptian grain ship? I already just told you it's not a good time to be sailing. Why would the Egyptian grain ship be headed to Rome at this time if they knew this wasn't a good time? Because Rome had given financial incentives 
for grain in particular to be brought to them so that the people wouldn't, there wouldn't be famine and that kind of stuff during the winter months. So they, were, they would pay for your boat if you lost it. They would pay you extra if you were able to make it uh, just so that they had extra supply of grain. People will do anything for money is the point uh, of that. So, okay, I know it's a big history lesson, but it's important. So they get to Fair Havens. And then verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. He says, guys, I have a bad feeling about this. Now, the text does not say that God spoke to him or told him it would go badly. It, he, he uses the word, I perceive, which is a word that's used many times in the New Testament when things are pretty obvious. For instance, Acts chapter 17, when Paul comes into Athens, and it says that there are uh, idols and shrines everywhere, and then he comes before the thought leaders of the day, and he says, I perceive that you're very religious. It's like, duh, right? There's more gods than people in Athens. I think you're religious. Um, how about the woman at the well? Uh, she's speaking to Jesus. This is John 4 or John 6, um, John chapter 4. Uh, the woman at the well is speaking to Jesus, and he basically reads her mail about her life, and she says to him, I perceive that you're a prophet, right? So Paul says, guys, this is, I perceive, it's looking pretty obvious that it's not going to go well for us. And Julius, who's the centurion, who does he listen to, Paul or the ship owner? Ship owner, the captain, as one does, right? I've got the owner of the ship, I've got a sea captain, or I've got a preacher. Who do I listen to? Right? The obvious choice is you listen to the sea captain, except by this time, Paul has traveled more than 3,000 miles by sea during all of his missionary journeys. And according to 2 Corinthians 11, he's already been through three shipwrecks. So he's looking at those skies. He knows the time of the season. He sees the choppy waters, and he's like, uh-oh. This is not going to go well, guys. And of course, they listen to the other voices on the boat instead of the voice of wisdom. This, this wise warning that Paul gives. And this is just an observation. How often do you and I listen to every other voice on the boat before we listen to the voice of wisdom? And you know, I could sit here and I could name some circumstances or some situations, but the beautiful thing is I don't have to do that because that's the Holy Spirit's job. Right? Not to condemn you, but to bring conviction. The, the Holy Spirit, right now, there are things in your mind where you know you have, you have or you are listening to other voices except the voice instead of the voice of wisdom. And that's just... The, the mercy of God through the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and challenge and to go, hey, you, want, you might want to think again about this. This probably isn't the best idea. So, we see Paul's wise warning. Are you guys with me? You're very quiet this morning. You stayed up too late to watch basketball, didn't you? Oh, just me. Okay. Look with me now at um, verse 13. Verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose or they, they caught their opportunity, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind, literally it's the word typhoon, 
called the Nor'easter, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they'd run aground uh, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, that means the mainsail, and they were continued to be driven along. Then they were violently storm-tossed. They began the next day to jettison the cargo, that's the grain. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle, that's other equipment, overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. <laughs> I love that line. We must run aground on some island. Who, who cares? Okay, so next I want you to see a dumb decision. There's a wise warning from Paul, and there's a dumb decision by these sailors. They ignore Paul's warning, and for a while, everything looks great. Everything seems fine. I can even imagine that they're sailing along in this boat, and, and the soldiers and the sailors are kind of making fun of Paul for being so worried, right? Well, see, we caught our break. We're, we are experts. You're a pastor. Shut up. Like, we know what we're talking about, okay? But all of a sudden, as is typical in storm seasons, things take a really hard turn. Um, have you ever endured a storm because of someone else's dumb decision? This tempestuous wind, this typhoon, right, hurricane level type storm comes upon them. And I don't know why, but it made me think of, uh, it's, it's worse than, you know, um, I don't know if you're Seinfeld fans, uh, George and the golf ball, the whale, and he's like, the sea was angry that day, my friends. It's like, it's that kind of thing, right? This roaring sea. They're doing everything they can to stay afloat. They are ducking behind another island. They're, they're lowering the mainsail so they don't get caught by the wind. They are throwing cargo overboard. Finally, they throw all the non-essential equipment that they have overboard, and nothing is working. The storm keeps raging. Twice in the text, the text tells us that they were driven along. Right? No control, just sort of drifting wherever the sea would take them. They're going further and further off course, further and further, further out into open sea. Days after days after days of constant darkness and raging storm. It's like, it's like this, as long as we had a little bit of light to navigate by, as long as we had a, a star out there somewhere that we could see, that we could sort of navigate by, we were okay. But we've seen nothing, no sun, no stars for days and days and days, and they are drifting, and, and they know they're in trouble. And so they start to despair. I mean, we've all seen this like in movies where uh, it's a critical moment, and they're trying everything they know how to try to, to fix it. And then at some point, one by one, they all realize there's no fixing this thing. And they go from this sort of frenetic activity on the ship to just sort of a quiet acceptance 
that it's over. And that's what's happening. You know, they've, they've tried everything, and they realize uh, this is the end. This is it. There's, there's nothing else we can do here. And so they start to despair. They start to give up hope. I wonder if you've ever been there. You've tried everything you know how to try. You're out of options. And you've got nowhere to turn. And then Paul pipes up in verse 21. And he says, men, you should have listened to me. And all the wives said, <laughs> please no one make that your life verse, okay? Uh, but he's not being petty. He's not, he's not having an I told you so moment. But he is saying this. He says, men, this was avoidable. This didn't have to happen. You made a dumb decision, and it has cost you. And how many of us can think back on dumb decisions that we've made that have cost us dearly? It has cost us time. And sometimes it, you're the victim of it, right? Other people have made dumb decisions that have cost you. It cost us time. It cost us friends. It's cost us relationships. For some, it's cost us a lot of money. For many of you, you've lost confidence. You've lost hope because of either your dumb decision or someone else's dumb decision that has had an effect on you. And so Paul says, this was avoidable. But then look what he says. Look, look at verse 22. Yet. Yet now. Some translations uh, translate that as, but now. This was avoidable, but this didn't have to happen. Yet. I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. This is similar to what Jesus said to Paul in that jail cell in Acts 23, isn't it? Take heart, be of good courage, right? Take courage. Men, listen, listen. I know you think it's over. I know you think all hope is lost. I know you think you're going to die. But trust me, there is still hope. You will live, but about this boat. <laughs> it's not going to go so well for the boat. We are going to get to Rome, just not the way we thought. Now, is that good news or bad news? You're going to get to Rome, just not on this boat. Is that good news or bad news? Yeah, depends on how attached you are to the boat, right? Like if you're the owner of the boat, it's not such good news. If you're just a passenger, whatever. But here's the question. Is our hope in the boat or in the God who made the sea? You know Jesus doesn't need a boat? You know that one time there's a raging storm and Jesus just came out walking on the water to those guys and he was like, hey, what's up? Like the boat's cool. I'm pro boat. I'm for the boat, but I don't need it because I made the water. So when we think about our lives, it, where are we placing our hope? Is it in our boat? Is it in our plans, our desires, the way we think life should go? Or are we trusting and hoping in the God who created our lives? How does Paul know this? He said, last night, a messenger of the God to whom I belong, so he knows his life is in God's hands, 
in whom I worship appeared to me. That's interesting. An angel of the Lord appeared to me. Didn't he just appear? Didn't Jesus just appear to him in Acts chapter 23, just like a couple chapters ago? He did. But, but hear me. Okay, I read some commentaries, and they were saying, uh, oh, Paul was just so calm during this, right? He was just so courageous and so calm. And maybe he was, but the text actually doesn't say that. I don't imagine that this storm is raging. I mean, Luke says we helped bring up the dinghy, the other boat, and strap it down. Like, so he's involved. He's helping them because he knows this is going badly. And I don't see Paul just sitting over in a corner, like crocheting something like, I told you, you know? Like, that's not... If Paul needed courage, if Paul needed encouragement and hope given to him by God in the jail cell, how much more would he need it during the raging storm? Because he's thinking to himself, okay, wait, God, you told me I was going to get to Rome. And now the ship is going down. Like, I don't understand. How often have we clung to a promise of God, but then our experience seems contrary to what we're hoping in? And so we're going, okay, I, I, I can't make sense of this. You said one thing, but I'm experiencing another, and it's, they don't seem to be compatible. And I'm, I, I don't know who to trust now. This is when some people bail on Jesus because they're like, well, I thought this, but then I experienced this, and so I'm out. And I just want to say to those people, you're not seeing it through. Like, a lot of us love that coffee cup verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, which says what? I know some of you know it. Sword drill. Who knows it? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's the life we all want. Amen? Okay, so then Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, listen to this. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. That all sounds great, doesn't it? And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible... I may attain the resurrection of the dead. See, we, we want a Jeremiah 29, 11 life without Philippians 3. We want resurrection power without death. And that's just not how life works. That's not how resurrection works. Um, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a book, I'm trying to remember the author, uh, Paul... He wrote the pray, A Praying Life, Paul Miller. He wrote another book recently called The J-Curve. And Philippians 3 is his base text. And he talks about how we all want uh, to know Christ and experience the power of the resurrection. I don't know if I'm, I might be doing this backwards. All right, I want to make the J. That's the J, right? For you? Okay. I want to know Christ. I know the power of his resurrection. This is where a slide would really be helpful. I should have made one. But to experience to identify with him in his death, right? You can't have resurrection. Like we can't make a beeline from knowing Jesus right to resurrection. We have to experience death with him also. Pain is part of the equation. Suffering is part of the equation, right? That's how we attain to resurrection power. It's both. And so Paul can say with confidence, I have faith, it will be, but. <laughs> I have faith, it will be, just as God said, but. We have to run aground on some island. 
And for Paul, the some island isn't of consequence, right? It's like, okay, we're going to run aground. It's fine. We're going to Rome still because it's going to be just like God said. That's hard, isn't it? You feel stuck sometimes in trusting the Lord when you're going through the bottom end of that curve and like, but I thought it was this. I want resurrection. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, three, three more days, right? You got to experience the death in order to get to the resurrection. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Last little bit here. Um, let's jump to verse 39. I'm going to summarize the rest, but let's go to verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land because it was just some island. But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So we're going right for the beachhead. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. So now they're just really drifting. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, They made for the beach. Let's get some momentum going here. But striking a reef or a sandbar, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard. Uh, first and to make for the land and the rest on planks and on pieces of the ship. I mean, it's, this is, it's a shipwreck, shipwreck. Pieces of the ship, we're going to float to shore on a piece of the boat. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. The last thing I want you to see here, and it might take me a minute to set it up, is a powerful promise. So to summarize the rest of the passage, two full weeks go by, adrift at sea, Now, the storm has started to subside a little bit, though the, the surf, the waves are still crashing, but they, the sailors sense that they're getting closer to land, so they start taking soundings to check the depth and see where they are. Some of the sailors actually tried to escape. They, they took the little lifeboat, and they put it out, and they were saying, oh, we're going to put out an anchor, and they were trying to get away, and Paul saw them, and he was like, uh-uh, uh-uh. God said we're all going to survive, but that's all if we stay in the boat. If you leave, we're all dead. And so the centurion, trusting Paul this time, says, all right, guys, come on back, and let's just stay here. So they eat something uh, to get some strength and some courage, and then they throw everything else, all the rest of their cargo, all the rest of the wheat, they throw it overboard so that they can get the ship up as high out of the water as possible. They see some island, they're like, looks good to me, and they're going to head towards it, put the sail up, and it's full speed ahead to see if they can get the boat up onto the shore. But they hit this sandbar, not something they were anticipating, okay? And so the boat is stuck, and the wind, or the, uh, the waves are starting to hit. Now, when they had brought the lifeboat up, they had tied ropes around the ship and against the lifeboat to keep the whole hull of the ship together. But because those other sailors tried to escape and they cut the lifeboat loose, those ropes that are holding the, the uh, hull together are no longer there. So as the w- uh, waves keep hitting the boat and they're stuck on the sand, it's breaking the boat into pieces. So they got to make it to shore. And so the, the centurion is like, all right, everybody off. Let's go. Don't kill these soldiers. They're not going to go anywhere. Just go. And so they swim or float to shore. Now, remember, this is probably like late October, early November, and they're taking a swim in the ocean. A little little frigid, making their way to shore. But all 276 passengers on that ship 
make it safely to this island, which we know uh, from next week's chapter is called Malta. And we're going to talk about Paul's ministry on Malta uh, last, next week in, in Acts chapter 28. But I love the end here, where in, in the ESV translation anyway, verse 44 says, And so it was. Just like they planned? No. And so it was just as they anticipated? Nope. Just as they wanted? Just as they dreamed? No. It will be. And so it was. Just as Paul was told. Now, I imagine that some of us might, because I did, ask this question. But why, though? But why? Paul is God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's already been through quite a lot. We've read all about it in those journeys, right? If you want a summary of it, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which I don't have time to read for you. But Paul talks about those three shipwrecks. So this is number four. Lucky guy, see? Um, he talks about constant beatings and being in turmoil and starving and all this stuff, and he's in danger from basically everyone on the planet. And God has promised him you're getting to Rome, and then another shipwreck? Like, it did, why? It's like my, my favorite meme. I'm a big meme and GIF guy, and it is GIF, not GIF. Don't come at me. Um, this woman, it's like a Twitter thing, and she says, I've been in seven car accidents. Don't tell me God has, doesn't have a plan for my life. And someone responded, I think he's trying to kill you, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like that. Why put Paul through this? Why another shipwreck? Why, why, why? So often we ask why when stuff like this happens. And here's the answer. You ready? I don't know. And neither does anyone else but the Lord. But I do know this. It will not be wasted. Now, many of us, we need a reason when we endure hardship, pain, suffering, trials, especially stuff that's unexpected, we want a reason. We want to know why, and we're not satisfied until we know why. The problem is we can't think of a good reason. And so I've, I've met a lot of people who come across hardship and pain and suffering, maybe their own, maybe just the pain in the world, and they, and they say to themselves, I can't think of a good reason why God would allow this, and so therefore... Either God is powerless to prevent these kinds of things from happening, or God is not good, and he just lets this kind of stuff happen to people, or maybe God doesn't exist at all. And with all due respect to anyone who holds a position like that, I think that's very foolish and very prideful to say, well, just because I can't think of a good reason, that means a good reason doesn't exist. Who are you? Dumb story, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. When I was 10 years old, I grew up in Florida, born and raised in Tampa. We have nothing good going for us except Tom Brady, and I mean, come on, that's not the greatest thing. So, but I, 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 all my family lived nearby. Like, my grandparents were a block from each other. I could ride my bike from my house to my grandparents, eat stovetop with them, then go to the next house and have stovetop. It's a reference to the 80s commercial you don't understand. So, uh... So when I'm 10 years old, my parents come to me and they say, hey, we're moving to Asheville, North Carolina, 700 miles away. And by show of hands, how many of you have moved, like relocated across states or across the country as a child? As a child, okay. 
uh, it's painful. Like my entire world, all my friends, all my family, my school, everything that I had uprooted. And I did not understand why, and I was angry and sad and frustrated in all the emotions. And my parents could have given me a reason. They could have said, listen, it's going to be better for us financially, right? You're going to, it's, a, it's a smaller town. It's a more, whatever. The mountains are cool. River, like, I, I did not, at 10 years old, have the perspective to see through their eyes and to know that this was a good thing for our family in the long run. And a lot more pain came after that. My parents split up, right? I mean, a lot of things happened. And yet I can now, as an adult, look back on all those experiences and realize that it was in the providential hand of God to bring me to Asheville, North Carolina, okay? Um, on a much grander scale. On a much grander scale. If God is truly God, don't you think maybe, perhaps, he could have a reason that you didn't think of for the pain, suffering, trial that you go through? And by the way, is a reason really going to help you? Think back to times when you've been in acute pain, suffering, and hardship. Did people's explanations and reasons and words give you a time? Is that what you remember most? Or is it their presence? Just their being there with you. Most of us don't remember a word people say in times of pain, but we remember that they were there. We don't remember their explanation, but we remember their presence. God doesn't always give us a reason, but he has given us himself. And we've seen it over and over and over again in these last few chapters. And that's why I brought up at the beginning, the power of God unleashed through his people at the beginning of Acts was power for sharing the gospel. And it still exists, but we see a different aspect of the power of God, which is his presence with us to help us endure hardship. And that's what the remaining chapters of Acts are really all about. So, so Paul says, last night he stood beside me. God sent an angel, and he stood beside me in this moment to give me comfort and encouragement and a reminder of the promise that is to come. But listen, I could sit here and tell you all day long that God is with you, and you're never going to believe it until you realize that he went in for you. Remember back to the book of Jonah. Just this past summer, uh, I think it was this past summer, or last summer, we did Jonah. Last summer. Okay? Jonah is a prophet. God says, go to this city. He disobeys, and he gets on a boat going the opposite direction. And what happens? A tempestuous wind, a storm, right? And the only way for the storm to cease is if Jonah throws himself into the storm in order to save everyone else. You get to the New Testament, and Jesus says, one greater than Jonah has come. In other words, Jesus went into the storm of God's judgment and wrath for sin. But he went in alone. He went into the ultimate storm. When he was nailed to the cross for us, he, he cried out. He turned his head towards heaven, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what happened? Silence from heaven. He was 
abandoned. There was nothing. He was all alone to suffer the, the storm of God's justice upon sin and sinners. And all of God's wrath fell on Jesus in that moment by himself. So that for those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus and are trusting in the, the finished work of Christ for us and his life, death, and resurrection with empty hands, any storm that we go through drives us closer to him. And that instead of pieces of the ship, we cling to his presence and his promises, trusting that he will bring us safely to shore. Like pain tends to be refining for the believer. That's what um, Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1, that it's like, it's, like a, it's like a furnace. And you're brought through it and all the other stuff. Because all of us have a mixture in our lives of faith and superficiality. And whether it's a storm or a furnace, what is meant in those times is for uh, those other things that we cling to that aren't God to be stripped away so that all that we have left is him and we find that he's actually enough. Pain is meant to be refining. And here's the good news. One more promise. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. So we can sing. We won't sing it today, but there's... Um, song that we sing from uh, the, the group City Alight, which is a uh, church band out of Australia, and they sing a song called Christ is Mine Forevermore. And here's how one of the verses goes. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good, but mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. This is what Paul clung to in the midst of that storm. This is what allowed him to keep going. And he needed those reminders. He needed Jesus to show up to him in the cell. He needed the angel to show up to him on the boat. But he had those promises. He had the presence of God that, that kept him going and allowed him, actually, we'll see next week, um, he has a pretty fruitful ministry on Malta. So as we wrap up, here's what I want to do. Four questions I want to put up on the screen for you to consider before we move into communion. You can write these down as they come. You can take a picture uh, of the screen when they're all up, but I do hope that they are helpful questions to allow you to process the sermon. First question is this. Who are the voices of wisdom in my life, and what are they saying to me in this season? Because we're prone to listen to all the other voices that tell us what we want to hear and to avoid the voices of wisdom that are speaking life and truth into our lives. So who, do you have any voices of wisdom in your life? Who are they? And, and what are those voices of wisdom speaking into you in this season? Okay, that might be a hard one, to, but, but it's worth thinking on. Second, where have I seen the Lord provide for, protect, or encourage me in choppy waters. 
Maybe it's a dumb decision that I've made. Maybe it's dumb decisions that other people have made, but the waters are choppy, and it's going to start being stormy. And yet, I have seen the Lord provide for me. I have seen him protect me. I have seen him encourage me when things are hard. Think back. Where have I seen the faithfulness of God to provide, protect, encourage in those storms? Third, how to sing Jesus go into the storm for me. Help me trust that he's with me in my storm. He went in. He endured. He took the justice, the, the, the judgment, the wrath for me. He, he, he absorbed all of it into himself. And he promises that he's with us in whatever storm we endure. And, and this, I'll stop there. There's more I want to say. Fourth, last. Maybe. I thought there was a fourth one. There it is. Is there anyone who might need my faithful presence and encouragement in their lives right now? Do I know someone else who's in a storm, who's in a, a time of choppy waters, and they don't need my explanation, they don't need my reasons, what they need is my presence. They need Christ's presence through me to just be with them and to be an encouragement to them in whatever they are facing. All right, I'll leave these questions up on the screen for you. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have just a moment of silence before we move into our time of response. Uh, we'll start by taking communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to these tables where we remember Christ being thrown into the storm, right? His body broken as he was nailed to that cross, his blood spilled as the crown of thorns was placed onto his head and him dying in our place for our sin that we might be forgiven and freed and, and made part of his family and given the promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us. So we come to these tables in thanksgiving. We come to these tables in, um, in repentance, turning away from sin and turning to Jesus, uh, turning from self-sufficiency, trying to paddle our way through our storm, giving ourselves to him, remembering, thanking him for the life, death, and resurrection that he went through for us. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you can stay in your seat. As you make your way back to your seats, there's black boxes. So if you're new here and you want to be known, you can fill out a Connect card. If you have a way we can pray for you, the backside of that blue and gray card is for prayers. Uh, so you can fill it out, put it in those boxes. Um, if you're a regular and want to give, you can do that as well through those boxes. And then we're going to sing a couple more songs uh, before we get out of here. So Father, thank you so much for these people, uh, for a chance to open your word with them. And I pray that something that has been said today would be an encouragement to them. Um, not all of us are in a storm, but we're either going into, in, or coming out of one. That's the way life is. And so um, I pray that something uh, that you revealed through your scripture would be of help um, and that regardless of where we find ourselves, that we would be comforted and encouraged by you um, and that we would cling to you, cling to your presence with us, cling to your promises to us, and that you give us great endurance for your glory and for our good. And I pray right now, Lord, that as we process what we've heard, as we sit before you in quiet, that you would do the work that you have set out to do in our souls, um, and that as we respond to you, you'd be honored and glorified, and that you'd fill us with a, a real tangible sense that you are with us right now, and that would bring us joy. I pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.